afternoon or evening, as the case may be, and welcome to episode 27. Hopefully you have been enjoying this podcast and all of the in-depth looks at films from the past and the present. As I always say, some of these movies may be well-loved and find themselves safely snuggled in your movie collections, while others may not have lit the world on fire when they first came out and deserve maybe a revisit. Either way, if you've listened to this show before, then chances are you have heard me open with this quote from actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. In today's episode, we are acknowledging the 30th anniversary of one of the most praised, one of the most quoted, certainly one of the most awarded, and some, maybe one of the most disturbing horror movies ever made. 1991's Silence of the Lambs, based on the 1988 book by Thomas Harris and directed by Jonathan Demme. This year is also the 20th anniversary of its first follow-up, the movie, I mean, 2001's Hannibal, with Sir Tony Hopkins returning as Hannibal Lecter, and Julianne Moore slapping on Jodie Foster's FBI badge to take on the role of Clarice Starling. I just want to say right out of the gate that if these are movies that might provoke any kind of a negative reaction, there is gruesome content in both of them. I'm sure that's not a surprise, but if you're unfamiliar with Silence of the Lambs or if you forget a lot of it because you've blocked it out or because it's been so long, it's only fair for there to be a heads up that there are some graphic scenes and some unsettling content that we will be talking about. But if you're okay with it or if you know the movie well or both, then cuddle up with Precious the Poodle and let's forge ahead. As always, we'll begin with a spoiler-free plot setup of both movies so that you can get an accurate sense of what the story is. You'll then get the spoiler alert as we dive into the behind-the-scenes facts. I don't know if I should use the terminology. I usually do, and I call them fun facts, but I don't know. In this particular episode, it just doesn't... I don't know. Given the violent nature of these flicks, does it feel right to call them fun facts? You tell me. I don't know. But then we're bringing it home with the results of the poll that was put out there in the socials and the trivia segment where winners will be announced and a new question hurled your way. First up at bat is the original, the first in the franchise, 1991's Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demme with a screenplay by Ted Talley that itself was based on the 1988 book by Thomas Harris, and it stars two double Oscar champs, Jodie Foster as FBI trainee Clarice Starling and Sir Anthony Hopkins as psychiatrist-turned-cannibalistic-murderer Hannibal Lecter. When it first came out, I was a teenager. I was blown away. I had developed an affinity for certain kinds of horror movies, probably around the time I was about 13. I hadn't read much about Silence of the Lambs at the time that I went to go see it, and neither had my movie-going partners at the time. My grandma and papa, <laughs> two endearing, five-feet-tall Italian-Americans who did everything together, including going to the movies with me from time to time. She was really the movie lover of the duo. He was there really more for the quality time, so... Yeah, you heard right, folks. Yours truly and his grandparents enjoyed some quality time together going to see Hannibal Lecter tell Clarice Stowling all about her cheap shoes and his dinner date with a census taker. Silence of the friggin' lambs. Looking back now, I can maybe chuckle at how taken aback the three of us were. It was a bit of an awkward walk back to the car at the end. Uh, at the time, walking out of the theater back to the car after the final frame faded out, it was, you know, we were all not sure what to say to each other because none of us knew really what to make of the movie. Movie that we just saw. You have to remember, this was before the internet. This was before IMDb. This was before Letterboxd. You had, really, all you had to go on was newspaper ads praising the film and late-night TV critics making gestures with their thumbs going up or down to express approval or disapproval. So you didn't have the information really at your fingertips. 
if someone accidentally threw the newspaper into the recycling bin, the one that had the review of the movie, then unless you wanted to go to the library and look it up on microfilm, you were not going to find the original review. And then 66-year-old woman, my grandma, who loved the movies ever since she was a kid growing up in the then-predominantly Italian neighborhoods of East Boston through the Great Depression, and when it came to the latest new releases, this woman did not miss a trick. Only with this trick, the rabbit was, wasn't really pulled out of the hat. She shook her head the whole ride home. I don't know why I saw that, she said. My grandfather, I dare say that I think he hated it with the heat of a thousand suns. The three of us were all feeling a little WTF, and I don't mean what terrific fun. You know, I suppose that I would have felt even worse, though, if I had actually been the one to pick the movie. But I wasn't. She actually was, for the record. None of us went in really having heard too much about it at this early stage of the game. But, hey, it was a night out, so... <laughs> um, she was very much a regular viewer of the Academy Awards, and, you know, she probably, my guess, had heard a lot of inevitable whispers about how this was going to be the movie to beat, even though it was released in February, so it wouldn't even be eligible for the Oscars until, you know, 12 months out. My grandparents, they've both been gone for a while now, but no memory of watching this movie is ever going to replace that first viewing. So, ti voglio bene non. Uh, to this day, I credit this movie for being the reason why I unknowingly perfected my ability to noticeably raise one eyebrow anytime I want to express any apprehension, or maybe a little bit of wonder. It's a tactic that I use every once in a while if a student of mine has their phone out repeatedly, or if they offer a wisecrack that crosses the line into the territory of the untoward. And it's all thanks to Clarice and Dr. Lecter and Dr. Crawford and Dr. Chilton, Catherine Martin, Adelia Mapp, and the SWAT commander played by none other than singer Chris Isaac. This is the movie where I perfected the single eyebrow arch because... I had to. Anyway, the opening shot that we're given is of an area that appears to be in the middle of the woods. A title card tells us that we are indeed in the woods near Quantico, Virginia. An unnerving musical score by Howard Shaw kicks in. Now, this guy, he's won three consecutive Oscars, one for each of the Lord of the Rings movies. So his mantle is pretty cluttered with trophies. Here... It's pretty safe to say that the production spared absolutely no expense when it came to investing in string instruments because this opening score, it screeches. I mean, it's, it's, it's instrumental, it's orchestral, but the strings are there. And it's hard to decide whether the score is tonal or not. Just when you think that there's a measure that resembles something like a coherent flow of notes, along come a few screeching strings and a series of notes that, on the surface, appear to be all over the place. It's, it's really effective as a mood setter. I mean, it's jarring, which gives you the impression that the story that's about to unfold is going to be one hell of a ride, which it is. We see a lone figure in the distance who is rope climbing up a hill. Then she runs through a path in the forest and she flips over a net. And so we're treated to close-ups of her feet as she's jogging. We see her profile as she's panting. And then a voice calls out to her, Styling, Crawford wants to see you in his office right away. And she nods and says, thank you, sir. And she runs out of camera range. And the guy who just called for her, he turns and faces us. He faces the camera to watch her run off. And it's a bit of blocking that's admittedly sort of an in-your-face. He's got on a baseball cap with the FBI logo on it. I mean, all that's missing is a flashing neon sign with a pointing arrow like they have outside of motels, you know, to ensure that this guy is with the FBI, she is with the FBI. She arrives at the FBI building, and in a great subtle moment, she gets into an elevator, and she is surrounded by all of these men, all of these male FBI agents. And this is a moment that, for me, defines her character right from the word go. She's in the elevator. The doors are about to close, but before they do, 
these guys are all towering over her. I mean, Jodie Foster is presumably not very tall anyway, but if they wanted to, they could have put lifts in her or something. But she is in this male-dominated environment, and even though we don't know it yet, that's going to be a pretty big theme in the story. So there she is, and she gets into the elevator, and where does she fix her gaze? Up. She does not look at the ground. She does not avert her gaze. No, she's looking up as the elevator doors close. It's a great visual that is subtle, and it really fits extremely well with her character. So she enters Dr. Crawford's office to wait for him, where she sees all of these newspaper clippings tacked up on the walls, and they're all about a serial killer on the loose who just claimed his fifth victim and skinned them alive. There are some close-ups of her face as she's reacting to these images, just as Crawford comes in. We're treated to some expository dialogue between them. The dialogue reveals that he remembers her from one of his seminars at the University of Virginia. There, she had grilled him pretty hard on the civil rights record in the Hoover years. He says that he gave her an A, and she corrects him by saying, A minus, sir. And she's in the top quarter of her class at the FBI Academy. She's double majored in psychology and criminology at UVA. She graduated magna. So when she graduates from the FBI Academy, she wants to come work for him in behavioral science. She says, yes, very much. I'd like that. And he says, well, right now we're interviewing all of these serial killers that we have in custody for a psycho-behavioral profile. It could be helpful in a lot of unsolved cases. Most of them have been happy to talk to us. He then asks her if she spooks easily. And she says, not yet. And he goes on to reveal that the one that they want most refuses to cooperate, a psychiatrist named Hannibal Lecter. She immediately recognizes the name, and she whispers, Hannibal the Cannibal. He wants her to go after Hannibal. He wants her to interview him. He tells her, I don't expect him to talk to you, but I have to be able to say that we tried. So if he won't cooperate, I want just straight reporting. How does he look? How does his cell look? Is he sketching? Is he drawing? If he is, what is it that he's sketching? She asks why the urgency. Is there some connection between him and Buffalo Bill? Buffalo Bill is the serial killer whose newspaper clippings she was just looking at. And Crawford says, no, but be very careful with Hannibal Lecter. Dr. Chilton at the asylum will go through the procedures with you. Don't deviate from them. Tell him nothing personal. Just do your job. Believe me. And this is a great line. He says, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. And she asks, why is that? Then cut to Dr. Chilton. She's now entering the building where all of these prisoners are kept, and Dr. Chilton is saying to her, he's a monster, a pure psychopath. Chilton goes on to say, from a research point of view, Hannibal is our most prized asset. He says that Dr. Lecter regards him as his enemy, but then slimily comes on to Clarice by saying, ooh, Crawford never sent anyone so attractive, and are you going to be in town overnight? This can be a fun town if you have the right guide. And she looks at him and she says, my instructions are to talk to Dr. Lecter, and then report back the same afternoon. Shilton doesn't exactly take the hint, and he comments on how Crawford was smart to send a pretty young woman to, to turn Dr. Lecter on. And he goes on to say, boy, are you ever his taste? And her response was, I graduated from UVA. It is not a charm school. So she has very, you know, reserved but rather assertive responses. And he says, good, then you should remember the rules. Do not touch the glass. Do not approach the glass. No staples, no paper clips in his papers. If he attempts to pass you anything, do not accept it. So they're going down several flights of stairs. They go down an elevator. All of this is done in red lighting. She suggests that if Lecter feels that Shilton is his enemy, then maybe she'll have more luck talking to Lecter if she goes in by herself without Shilton there. 
And Shelton sees, he reads between the lines, and he looks at her, and he says to her, rather coldly, you might have suggested this in my office and saved me the time. And she looks at him, and she pretty much hits him between the eyes. She says, then I would have missed the pleasure of your company, sir. He settles with giving her a dirty look, walks away, and leaves her there by herself. And that brings us to the introduction to Dr. Hannibal Lecter. She makes her way down the hall of this dungeon. She walks past a few other prisoners whose behavior is an indication that they are not plugged all the way into the wall. Lecter is standing with his arms by his sides, perfectly still, perfectly composed, like a wax figure almost. He's just staring ahead at Clarice as she takes her place in front of the glass, but at a good distance. After this meet-cute and some cordial greetings, he asks her if she knows why the serial killer in the loose is called Buffalo Bill. Please tell me, the newspapers won't say. Why do you think he removes their skins? And she replies, it excites him. Most serial killers keep some sort of trophies from their victims. Hannibal responds, I didn't. And she says, no, 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 you ate yours. And thus begins a cat-and-mouse game of psychological warfare, as we witness this uncertain but willing and determined FBI trainee square off against this manipulative and evil murderer who finds her intriguing and feels a twisted affinity for her almost, a protective nature. Jodie Foster, Sir Anthony Hopkins, they convey this fierce intensity, not just through the dialogue, which is written excellently, but every nuance, every every slight movement of the head, every facial tick, violent content aside, this is a film that is the blueprint for screen acting. I'm telling you, this is raw intensity. No matter how many times you see it, she's just, she's got this ability to exude this natural intelligence. It's a quality she has. It's natural. It's a quality she has as an actress that I've always been drawn to. And if you look back at Jodie Foster's filmography, some of her most well-known roles, they tend to be pretty grim stuff, not just here, but in movies like The Accused, The Brave One. But granted, both she and Hopkins have had their fair share of hits and misses in their careers, but in this one, they're in peak form. This is the zenith of their careers. There have been sequels. Hopkins would play Hannibal twice more in 2001's Hannibal and 2002's Red Dragon. There would be a prequel, an origin story called Hannibal Rising in 2007. There has even been a TV series called Hannibal. It ran for, I think it was 39 episodes from 2013 to 2015, with Mads Mikkelsen as Dr. Lecter. He plays the lead in this year's Best International Feature Oscar winner, Another Round. He's also in 2012's Best International Feature Oscar nominee, The Hunt. Both are incredible films from Denmark, but that's getting beside the point. There have even been the inevitable parodies, like 1994's Silence of the Hams. But for a lot of us, the saga began in cinemas on Valentine's Day, 1991, 30 years ago. But fast forward now to 2001, 10 years later, or 20 years ago, depending on what you want your vantage point to be. Thomas Harris had written a long-awaited follow-up that came in the form of his 1999 book that was simply called Hannibal. Now, I did read the book when it was first published, but I just had trouble getting into it. Clarice seems to have hit rock bottom. In the first chapter, she's involved in a shootout. It leaves several bad guys dead, one of them a woman who's got a baby in her arms. So Clarice, her career is in jeopardy. Her confidence is at a low. She's haunted by the memories of this screaming but uninjured infant as she's washing the blood off of it. So I can understand why there was some consternation about a movie sequel. 
And throw these ingredients into the story salad, by the way. Cattle eating a human alive. Clarice having had an affair with a married father in the ten-year interim. A twisted, controversial, and really unsettling ending that left many readers scratching their heads, wondering what the hell Thomas Harris did. Where did he completely bastardize his own agent Stalin character beyond redemption? For the screenplay of the inevitable film, the ending was somewhat modified, but apparently not enough to convince Jodie Foster that there was still enough water left in Buffalo Bill's well to make it worth her time. So she passed, and Oscar-nominated, now an Oscar winner, Julianne Moore stepped into the role. Moore made a name for herself already. She was a double Oscar nominee for Boogie Nights with Mark Wahlberg and Burt Reynolds, The End of the Affair with Ray Fiennes. She had pretty much already achieved cult status as well with her appearance in the Coen Brothers' The Big Lebowski. Oh, I got more to say about plans for the Coen Brothers later on in the show, so stay tuned, by the way. Getting back to Julianne Moore, though, she would score two additional nods the year after Hannibal for both Far From Heaven with Dennis Quaid and Dennis Haysbert and The Hours with Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman. She would finally claim her Oscar for Still Alice in early 2015. So between these two films, Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal, there are five Oscar wins, all in the leading category, divided among the two Clarices and Dr. Lecter. As for Hannibal, Sir Anthony Hopkins is back as Dr. Lecter in all of his evil glory, but the directing reigns went to Ridley Scott, director of The First Alien, Blade Runner with Harrison Ford, Thelma and Louise with Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, Gladiator with Russell Crowe, Black Hawk Down, American Gangster with Denzel, The Martian with Matt Damon, and the underrated All the Money in the World with Christopher Plummer and Michelle Williams. As I said, Julianne Moore steps into the role of Agent Styling, and she is a talented actress usually. She has a few good moments here, and I was willing to try to put Foster away for the running time of this film and just focus on Moore, but to be honest, it was already a losing game before the ink dried in her contract. It's through no fault of Julianne Moore. I do want to make sure that that is clear. You just can't always have lightning strike twice, especially if the second time changes the presentation of the character who's the center of the story, especially after the original incarnation was so iconic and award-winning. All due respect to Moore, but it's impossible to watch Hannibal without feeling the specter of Jodie Foster in every scene that Clarice is in. Moore does her best. She does her due diligence to adopt the same southern accent that Foster used in the original. It's not quite as distracting as Brad Pitt's unconvincing Irish brogue in The Devil's Own, but we're not at the level of Kate Winslet's let-a-perfect Delaware County, Pennsylvania twang in Mare of Easttown either. The movie's not as compelling or as thrilling as its predecessor, to be honest. Inconsistent pacing gore for gore's sake, and not for storytelling as in the first one. Probably the biggest cringe moment in this thing is when a character's looking at a computer screen, and they're looking at the FBI's most wanted list, and isn't Hannibal Lecter's grinning mug there in the same grouping of real-life individuals, such as, of all things, Osama bin Laden? The scene with the baby at the beginning is intact, straight from the novel. Sir Anthony Hopkins is back, Julianne Moore gives it her all, but... The whole project just deflates under its own weight, I thought. Sequels sequels are not always sequels do not always fall short. There are some perfect ones that sometimes surpass the originals, but this ain't one of them. Is it worth a look? Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you're a completist and want to see every entry in the franchise, then have at it and enjoy. It's got some good elements in it. The Return of Hopkins but nothing is going to top the original. And in one last defense of Julianne Moore, I kind of have the feeling that had Jodie Foster returned, it still wouldn't have raised the movie too many notches up. The, the story is just not as engaging. I don't like the direction they took the character of, of Clarice. And in one last point that I want to make, I have to chuckle every time I hear any movie character be in a scene that takes place here in Massachusetts, and they refer to the Mass Pike by its full name, the Massachusetts Turnpike. 
and they refer to Massachusetts Avenue <laughs> instead of Mass Ave. Probably the native in me, but I was just find that so darn cute. So Okay, so strap on those night goggles and get ready for me to yell freeze because here is your spoiler alert as we dive into the top 10 fun facts about 1991's Silence of the Lambs. Number one. In the DVD commentary, the director, Jonathan Demme, he said, and I quote, In all our movies, Tak Fujimoto, the director of photography, and I always try to never have a close-up that's the same as a close-up either compositionally or size-wise in any other sequence in the movie. I mean, you can see so many pictures where there is a certain close-up size where there it is. It's framed in exactly the same way and the head's the same size in it. Even as in life, every encounter feels differently and is perceived visually differently, inevitably. It should be the same way in movies, we think. End quote. So, pick at random any two close-ups and see if he speaks truth. Number two. Same DVD commentary, same director Jonathan Demme, he said, and I quote, Of all the scenes to film, the scene of Catherine in the bottom of the pit, begging this guy for permission to go home, was the hardest one to do. I really had a lean on Brooke, who's a fine, fine young actress. I really felt I had a lean on her a lot to make sure that she honored dramatically the horrible reality of people who had been thusly confined also. You gotta show just how horrible it is, or you're doing a disservice to the families. And I told her she needed to be prepared to do kind of anything to get out of that pit, even as someone in a pit like that would feel compelled to try anything, and I wasn't sure what form it would take. We've heard from the literature about this reduction to the infantile state and how grown-ups who are confined at a certain point become the child who's trapped in a room and wants to get home to their mommy in time for dinner, and I wanted to push that and be sure we were being truthful with it. End quote. And she does at one point, if you recall, in the pit, she just sobs, I want my mommy, I want my mommy. It's really a very heartbreaking moment, but she does great with it. Number three. In the DVD commentary, the screenwriter Ted Talley says, I quote, There's a scene in the book when they first bring him to Memphis where the two policemen are actually running a metal detector over him, and when it gets to his mouth, it sets off the metal detector, and one of them says, Something in his mouth, reach in there. You reach in there. And they decide it's probably just his fillings, and they're going to leave it alone. I'm sort of pained by the camp fun that Lecter turned into. I mean, Lecter, who's this completely horrible character, became this sort of cuddly camp figure. It's strange to see Tony Hopkins, an insane serial-killing cannibal, become sort of the mascot of college kids at their beer parties and women saying, you know, he's so sexy. The last thing you ever expect to happen is for a movie to become a cultural phenomenon to sort of pass into the zeitgeist of the country. It's tapped it in some way that I didn't know it was going to. He is unadulteratedly evil. We never wanted to pretend otherwise. End quote. Number four. The film has generated both then and now some controversy, particularly within the transgender community, in terms of its depiction of the character Buffalo Bill. Rolling Stones magazine, as far back as 1994, talked with Jonathan Demme as he was promoting his follow-up film, Philadelphia, the drama starring Tom Hanks, playing a lawyer who was suing his employer for unjust firing after he was diagnosed with the AIDS virus. Quote, I hadn't been paying attention to the absence of positive gay characters all that much, so I came away from the protests enlightened, and it made me happy that I was already working on Philadelphia before Lambs came out. End quote. <laughs> 
But he still insists that he did not make Philadelphia as sort of an apology for his depiction of the transgender community in Silence of the Lambs. Take it as you will. Number five. Jodie Foster says in the DVD commentary, quote, The original credit sequence was she bursts into a room of terrorists and terrible things are happening and a woman's abducted and everybody goes, just kidding. And it's just an exercise for the FBI. And I said, what you need is something that has to do with the training sequence, end quote. Hence, the opening montage of her with the rope climbing and flipping over the net and jogging through the forest. I think it gives us a good indication, the opening that she suggested, that she's this strong-willed character who's determined to prove herself. I, th I think that I think that works. It puts the focus on her and not on FBI training procedures. Number six. Anthony Hopkins, in that DVD commentary, he describes his meal and the slurping sound. Quote, I remember seeing Dracula when I was a kid. I didn't know if it actually happened in the Bela Lugosi film when he sees Jonathan Hacker when he cut himself with the razor and made that slurping sound. It must have happened in my subconscious somewhere. End quote. So he was basically imitating what he thought he remembered from Dracula, but was not actually in Dracula. Number seven. This movie was released in 1991 on Valentine's Day. The distributor, the now defunct Orion Pictures, they released it in February because they were putting all of their Oscar hopes on Dances with Wolves. And Dances with Wolves, indeed, dominated the 1990-91 awards season. Seven Oscars, including Best Picture. So the following year, early 92, a year after its release, Silence of the Lambs was remembered by the Academy voters, and the Lambs screamed with joy. <coughs> Number eight. The rights to the character of Hannibal Lecter, believe it or not, were given away for free. Michael Mann, in 1986, made a movie called Manhunter. And it was based on Thomas Harris's 1981 novel, Red Dragon, which is the first of four books featuring Dr. Lecter. Manhunter was a flop. It barely made half of its budget back at the box office. So the producer gave the rights to the Silence of the Lambs producers for free. Lecter's second movie, Silence of the Lambs, ended up making $272.7 million, about $264 million more than Manhunter. Number nine, Jonathan Demme earlier had directed the 1988 comedy Married to the Mob starring Michelle Pfeiffer, which did not exactly portray the FBI in the most favorable light. After the FBI impressed Jodie Foster in real life with their handling of a death threat against her, they earned her respect enough that she approached Jonathan Demme before filming the movie to make sure that the FBI would be portrayed, quote, in the correct way, end quote. Number 10. Michelle Pfeiffer might have been Clarice. Sean Connery may have been Dr. Lecter. But Sean Connery found the script revolting, and he flat out passed on it. And like a lot of other actors, Michelle Pfeiffer was, quote, concerned about the darkness of the piece, end quote. And I hope you don't mind, but I have two bonus ones. I could not narrow it down to 10. I had to leave all 12 of them in. So bonus number one. Originally, Dr. Lecter was going to be dressed in black or brown when he's transferred out of Baltimore, but it was Hopkins who suggested that he be dressed all in white because, as he admitted, that choice of wardrobe for him reflected the fear of going to the dentist. And bonus number two. Remember when Dr. Lecter was mocking Clarice's southern accent and she reacts in horror? 
That was a moment that was improvised by Hopkins on the spot. Her shocked reaction is genuine. And after shooting the scene, she later thanked him for bringing that sense of realism out of her for the performance. Okay, so that's my two cents. Spend them, save them, or chuck them as you see fit. And now it is time for the final segment of today's show, the poll results and the trivia. The poll this week asked you what you would choose to have for dinner if you had to go for one of them. Fava beans, an excellent alternate source of protein, a nice Chianti, or would you rather just toss them both down the drain and go for takeout instead? And on Twitter, it is a clean sweep for the Chianti. And we got votes for it on both Facebook and Instagram as well. There was one vote for takeout, as long as it was not liver. And that was regular listener Mary C., who offered that pearl of wisdom. Thank you, Mary. As always, you also keep breaking your own record as far as the trivia goes, because last time, the question was, which Oscar-winning film that I covered in a previous episode does Lon Chaney Jr., star of The Wolfman, appear in? And Mary, you are right on target with saying High Noon, starring Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly. I covered that film along with 1988's Christmas classic action flick Die Hard back in episode 14. So if any listener out there hasn't heard that one yet, be sure to check it out soon, because the holiday season is going to descend upon us in two shakes of a rat's ass. I'm behind with sending out the memes, but they are on their way, I promise, to all winners past and present. And that includes my buddy Stu from the show, Stu and Alpod, who's always a pleasure to hear from. He's got the answers to a few, actually. He answered the questions for episode 22, the one on Back to School and Billy Madison. Yes, Sherlock Holmes is the franchise, other than Iron Man, that Back to School co-star Robert Downey Jr. headlines along with Jude Law. He also got Gary Oldman for playing Dracula in Francis Ford Coppola's film from 1992. And, Stu, you also bopped it right in the head with The Dark Half as the film that Night of the Living Dead director George A. Romero adapted from a Stephen King book starring Oscar winner Timothy Hutton of Ordinary People, Taps, and Falcon and the Snowman. This is actually a good time to go back to what I mentioned earlier in this episode about the Coen brothers. Stu and I, we've been going back and forth for a while about having him and his co-host Al come on Silver Screeners for a special episode on the Coen brothers' films. So that's something that's going to be coming down the pike. And I want to give full credit where credit is due. Stu came up with a title for the episode, The Coen Chronicles, which is just delicious alliteration. But once we get our schedules lined up, we're going to make it happen. So check out the podcast, Stu and Al Pod. It debuted in May of 2020. I first came across it last December. And from what I gather from their banter back and forth, they've been friends since they were kids together. So they got great chemistry. They lift each other up. They tear each other down. So go check out their podcast. Tell them I sent you. All right, so before we go, there's one last thing. This episode's trivia question. So for a personalized meme and a shout-out, take a crack at this one. I mentioned how between Julianne Moore, Sir Anthony Hopkins, and Jodie Foster, there are five Oscar wins. And I said that Julianne Moore got her one Oscar for the film Still Alice from 2014. What 1976 film got Jodie Foster, then just 14 years old, her first ever nomination? I'll give you some hints. She played opposite Robert De Niro. It's a Martin Scorsese crime drama thriller. And her character's name is Iris. Very gritty. Very violent, very disturbing, very 70s, very Scorsese. Name this movie that celebrates the 45th anniversary of its release this year. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share, thoughts on Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, Jodie Foster, Julianne Moore, Sir Anthony Hopkins, or any movie that I may or may not have talked about yet, hit me up on my socials, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, The Film Group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can just email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. 
And that about wraps up episode 27. As always, folks, thank you for taking time out of your day or evening or morning or whatever to give this a listen over these past six months. It means a lot to hear from people that one of these episodes got them interested in a movie or had them revisit one that they hadn't seen in a while. My favorite part of this whole podcasting thing, honestly, is meeting new people, connecting with people I hadn't connected with in a while. So thanks. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. No complaints here if you take a second to give this show a rating on Apple or iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps boost the algorithms. It gets more people to discover the show. Or if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be great as well. Rock on. Thank you again. My name is Frank. I'll be seeing you in the next episode. Until next time, keep on screening. And now go enjoy a beverage of your choice. Diet Coke, maybe. Water, lemonade, apple cider, iced tea, or perhaps a nice dinner of just fava beans and a nice Chianti.